Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On today's episode, we hear from Rick Stengel, current Walter Shorenstein Media and Democracy Fellow and former Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs. He discussed the differences between working in media and government, the Trump administration's relationship with the press, and how terrorist groups use social media. The conversation was moderated by Nick O'Mealy, director of the Shorenstein Center. Hello, folks. Welcome to our Brown Bag Speaker Series. My name is Nick O'Mealy. I'm the director of the Shorenstein Center. Many familiar faces. Good to see you all. Without further ado, let's talk about Rick. Rick Stengel is uh, our... Haven't you memorized this by now? My whole bio. You, you would think. Okay. You would think. Rick is our Walter Shorenstein Media and Democracy Fellow this spring. He comes to us having most recently served as Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs in John Kerry's State Department. As he is... I've heard him say it's the longest title in the U.S. government. <laughs> he was Time Magazine's 16th managing editor and has had a long and distinguished career as journalist. At Time, he held positions as senior writer and essayist and national editor. He's written for, I'd say, just about every significant American publication there is. He's written a number of books, including a collaboration with Nelson Mandela on Mandela's autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom. He was also the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and he is leading a series of study groups uh, here at the Shorenstein Center for sessions. The second one is tomorrow night on uh, information war or the battle, the battlefield of information. Is that get that about right? And I wanted to just open Rick by asking you a question that uh, is some ways simple and some ways complicated. You have been both a journalist and in public service in government. And your job in government was really to, in many ways, to deal with the media and journalists. And I wonder how it felt switching sides like that and what you have learned about both sides of the equation. So, hi, everybody. Welcome. Nice to see you all. Um, nice to see some faces that look more like mine than all these really young faces that I've been <laughs> seeing around here. Um, and this is a, I mean, the, this is the topic of the moment, really, what we're talking about is sort of the intersection between media and government. And obviously what we've seen over the last, you know, months uh, makes it something that's really critical. Um, by way of answering Nico's question, I mean, I, I, when I was in the press, I didn't know all that much about things, and I tried to be as controversial as possible. And then when I was in government, I knew actually a lot about things and tried to be as uncontroversial as possible. And I'm still feeling the kind of detox from government. So when, when Nico was saying, there's a podcast of this, I thought, oh, no. Um, and actually, the, and part of that was it took me a while, having been so many years as a, as a media person, when I got into government, learning how to do government speak. Uh, and not that I wanted to completely do it, but it's, it's a very different way of, of speaking, and it's a much more careful way of speaking, and it's a much more uh, purely fact-based way of speaking. And that's one reason that the, I think the campaign and even the nascent presidency of, of Donald Trump is so uh, alarming in so many ways is because the, the, their, the use of language is so out of proportion, it's so non-normative. Um, and, you know, every phrase 
I mean, what does tremendous security mean? Um, I don't know. And so, uh, I, and I'm not saying that the, that, the, that the glossary and vocabulary of government shouldn't expand, it should. And, I, and one of the things that I fought against when I was in the State Department is that kind of the public affairs spokesperson mantra of limited vocabulary, you know, the kind of State Department function when you're unhappy about something, you know, people would battle for, for you know, hours over, do we, are we very disturbed or are we just disturbed <laughs> by, by the, you know, what's going on in, in Kenya? Um, so, um, but to get to your question, I mean, the, the it, what you're really asking, and somebody asked me this, like, was that once you've gone into government, what percentage of the stuff that you think in media is correct as opposed to what you thought when you were in media? So if, when you're in media, you think, um, you know, 85, 90% of the stuff that, that you're doing is, are you shaking your head in a positive way or a negative way, I Helen? I agree with what you're about oh, to say. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, Helen always annotates what I say, so. Uh, um, but then when you get in government, I actually was, was pleasantly surprised that it turns out 70 to 75 percent is, is, is probably right. I mean, it's not as high as journalists think it is. And obviously, all of, uh, and we can spend time talking about fake news, whatever that means, and it's become a meaningless phrase, but, but that uh, all, every, any kind of human endeavor where you are actually not having the experience yourself and you're trying to use some other means to describe it is, not, is never going to be completely accurate. And of course, everything we've learned about neuroscience is even when you have the experience, your translation of it isn't necessarily accurate. Um, so I had always been a person who, as a journalist, uh, wanted to be inside the room. And then when the opportunity came to be inside the room in government, it was, it was a fantastic experience. And I have to say, I mean, I, uh, it was... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very powerful to be, as someone's called it, behind the flag and to be representing the U.S. government. And it, as from an anthropological perspective, it was absolutely fascinating as someone who'd spent most of my career as a journalist to be in the room, in rooms like this, because uh, there were so many times, and it never stopped, where I would sort of pinch myself and say, well, wow, this is how they do it? And, um, and by the way, sometimes it's kind of fantastic, and sometimes it was, you know, disappointing. Hmm. And when you're watching this current administration trying to, I don't know what they're trying to do. Uh, when you watch this current administration's relationship with the press, having just been, in some sense, in some of their shoes, yeah. what, uh, what do you think's going on, or what is part of your diagnosis of the current situation? Well... I think there's a tremendous similarity to, to take this even up to you know 60,000 feet between what the Trump administration and the president in particular is doing and what autocrats and dictators have done through a lot of the 20th century and the 21st century and what Vladimir Putin does, which is to to try to delegitimize the opposition. You know, the Bannon has said the press is the opposition. Uh, you know, Trump has used that incredibly odious phrase, enemy of the people, which uh, a Stalin-esque phrase. Um, but, but what it is is in some ways even more pernicious, which is to try to uh, eliminate dissent, eliminate criticism, uh, which is, a, you know, a violation in the most basic way of, of what 
the First Amendment says and the, and the, and the very basis of, of America is, which is, uh, you know, the First Amendment is, the, you know, the press is the only industry business that's protected by the Constitution. And the reason it is is because the framers realized that a democracy doesn't go of itself and you need, and you need to have an informed electorate and the way to do that was through media and the press and they were very prescient about that. And, uh, and what the administration is trying to do with everything from uh, uh, seeing, you know, who, who's, who's leaking uh, to trying to kill the messenger, i.e. the leakers and journalists, rather than investigating what the problem is, because leaking is always symptomatic of a, of a, of a problem, um, and, and, and taking this sort of Nixonian persecution of the press to a level that we've never seen is, is, is dangerous. And, um, and I think there'll be real consequences um, in terms of how successful they are at that. And how, uh, how would you, how do you assess the way the press has responded? Well, I, I, I'll put it in sort of BC and AD. Um, BC being pre-election and AD being post-election. Um, I think that the press uh, was in many ways and in some ways unconsciously so, a handmaiden to Trump's victory. Um, every bit of social science that we've all seen over the past 25 years is that basically people watch television as though the sound is off. And what they, they, va they value what is on the screen with, that, with the sound off. And the fact that CNN and other uh, media organizations gave a disproportionate amount of attention to Donald Trump, uh, a lot of it unmediated by, by, by filming his rallies. What it said to viewers was, this is important, pay attention. And um, I actually think that the, 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 the most brilliant and I thought um, kind of American uh, response early on was from the Huffington Post who said, we're not covering him in the politics section, we're covering him in the entertainment section. And uh, that, that should have been the way, you know, he was covered. And so I think uh, BC, press, the press has a, has a lot to look inward about in terms of... Uh, why, why, why do you think that is the way he should have been covered? Well, I think, I think he was a, not a legitimate candidate in the beginning. So he is a person who, having been, I mean, he, you know, he was flirting with this because uh, it helps his business, it helps his reputation. Um, it, was never the, it was never a desire to actually be president and have certain ideas and policies about what he wanted to execute. And so I, I, I thought he was a non-serious candidate and so who was made more serious by press coverage. Because the press gave him a disproportionate share of the spotlight when they shouldn't have. And a disproportionate share of the spotlight. And unlike every other candidate, instead of treating him like a politician, they treated him like a celebrity or an athlete. He'd, at the end of the debate, it would be, hey, champ, how was that debate for you? As opposed to... Uh, no, the United States is not the highest taxed country in the world. It's 123, according <laughs> to the World Bank. Yeah. So, um, so I think the press, again, played an played a unhelpful role in the early on. AD, um, post-election, I think the press has been vigilant and uh, 
you know, the, the embrace of fact-based reporting and investigative reporting and criticism and, and, and learning to be able to start saying, you know, in real time, that's not correct. No, we're not the highest tax country in the world. Uh, uh, no, uh, you didn't have an electoral college victory that was greater than anybody. In fact, it was less than, you know, George Bush first, George Bush second, Bill Clinton, <laughs> Ronald Reagan, you name it. Um, I, I think one of, that's one of the things that the press is learning is to be able to react in real, real time because so much news now uh, is tracked and made and annotated in real time. And, and, and you can't just wait until the next morning to make the correction. So how would you assess, or, and so that was, pr that was during the campaign, and now how do you make of where, what do you make of where it is now? I mean, we had last week, uh, you know, on Friday, the Sean Spicer, White House press secretary, uh, appears to have excluded more critical outlets from uh, a gaggle. Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of have real reservations in part how the media covered that story in a sense. But I'm wondering how you assess their what's happening now, how they're how they're learning to cover this president. Well, I, and by the way, in that case, some a couple of media organizations boycotted the gaggle when they discovered that the New York Times and CNN was excluded, one of whom was Time, my old publication, I believe AP did too, and I, I, that would have been something that I would have argued that everybody should have done. Um, it does feel like so much of it, their template is the sort of Nixon White House, and um, and I think some, there's some learning from that about how to, how to, how to be oppositional. Uh, when when someone has made you the opposition, um, I do think to be fair, some of this is just uh, they're new, they're new and they're not experienced, and everybody struggles um, in the beginning. And I think the, you know, there's that what was the Mark Twain line? You never want to get a, in a fight with somebody who buys ink by the barrel. Uh, I think it's a I think it's a mistake. You know, to you, it's, you can't really win because. The press is history, and it's like they're going to write the history of it. Although, although I do wonder a little bit, like watching how it all played down last went down last week and over the weekend, it seemed a little bit like the the press was almost play, it's too self congratulatory and self righteous. That the story in the front page of the Sunday New York Times was, you know, the attack on the press. Yeah. Not the president won't answer tough questions. Right. They may it like and the dynamic seems to me to not be uh, uh, to to be a little too self-congratulatory rather than keeping the focus on the on the yeah. White House. I, I would I would agree with that. And um, and, you know, to quote Steve Bannon, I mean, the New York Times got it very wrong. And um, and so did most, you know, mainstream liberal media. I mean. Um, and and there should be consequences to that. Um, I do think now that 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 we the press we can be too self congratulatory, um, as you mentioned. And I think I think the third thing that is the true and disturbing is that you know we're living in an era of media confirmation bias, right? Which we've talked about for a long time. Is that as and even when the press is self congratulatory, like boy we discovered this or we did this. I mean. You know, whatever it is, some very large section of the population will say half uh, don't accept that as as a fact. You know, I always love quoting the 
you know, the, Pat Moynihan's great line about uh, you're entitled to your own opinions, you're not entitled to your own facts. Well, that turns out to be wrong. People feel entitled to their own facts. And so the media can be patting itself on the back that we, you know, we've exposed these lies. And, and if half the people don't feel that they were lies to begin with, is that a success? What's, what's, how do you measure that kind of success? Um, because it's not translating in a way that traditional media thought that the presentation of evidence translated. And so to kind of change direction a little, what did that mean for you in, in the State Department? Did you, did, to, to what extent was, if your job in the State Department was kind of the uh, communicating to Americans about American foreign policy and communicating to people in other countries about American foreign policy and kind of diplomatic priorities, to, to what extent were you thinking about that confirmation bias, the challenges inherent in that media landscape? And, um, and one thing I really am curious about is, to what extent did you think about the State Department as needing to go directly to populations and the public or various publics versus go through other go through media companies go through intermediaries yeah uh like how how did you think about that land the media landscape and communicating with the public so i used to say when when i was editor of time that that the job of time was to explain the world to America and America to the world, which is not a terrible definition of, of public diplomacy. That one falsehood in your question is that Smith-Munt, anybody here know what Smith-Munt is? Smith-Munt is a law that was passed after World War II that basically said after, the, uh, after uh, USIA became part of the State Department, Smith-Munt is a law that says that the State Department cannot create content the content that's created for foreign publics, foreign audiences, is not allowed to be delivered to the domestic audience. This is pre-web, pre-internet, pre-cable television, where there was a kind of the physics of communication had to do with you know actual you know newspapers and radio broadcasts. And so, um, it's the law is an anachronism in the in the age where there are no barriers anymore. But it still is the law, and at the State Department, we took that pretty seriously. So I was not allowed, in terms of, to communicate to domestic audiences about whatever it is that we were doing. Um, and if that happened in an unintended way, that was fine. The law has been updated a little bit. It still actually needs to be updated. But, but that being said, you know, one of the big revelations for me um, in government was that we're not the best messenger for our message. Right? There are so many people around the world that are disposed to, to you know, because of Russian disinformation and all their kinds, disposed to take anything that comes from the U.S. government as automatically a falsehood and a lie. So if, if and I ran the counter ISIL messaging center at the State Department, it's like, yeah, I could send a tweet to a young man in, you know, in Turkey who's thinking of going to fight in Syria, like, don't do it, you know, signed Under Secretary of State for Public Diplomacy. Um, public Affairs. Yeah, would it have the, uh, the absolute opposite of effect. And one, so one of the things we realized is that, and, and I think traditionally people in government thought, oh yeah, government needs to message directly to people, and we can do that now. It's now, it's the, you know, it's the old one-to-many model on social media, but, but other than giving 
you know, saying this is what our policy is, I actually think it's very hard for the U.S. government in any way in terms of communications to persuade people of a point of view or to persuade them that our policy is good. I, I think ultimately what we needed to do is to get in a conversation with people because other governments don't do that. They don't want to hear from people. So one of the, in a very large way, my thinking and, and in terms of how we did public diplomacy was really starting to use, how do you use third party credible voices who you can optimize and give platforms to and help in terms of create capacity that would help tell America's story in a way that was persuasive to foreign audiences and, and, and wasn't a liability like us always telling our own story. I think we, never, we can never stop telling our own story, but we have to be more uh, realistic about what the effect of that is. And, um, you know, and, and now we have a gigantic public diplomacy channel uh, challenge. I mean, as you know, Jimmy Kimmel said at the beginning of the Oscars, we're beaming this broadcast now into 242 countries around the world, all of whom hate us. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I think it is, it's, it's a very, 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 very big challenge. And, and we saw this challenge happening during the campaign um, because the greatest thing that people like to say about America is that you guys are hypocrites. And one of the things that we see is that, you know, with certain policies and whether it's the um, travel ban, I mean, people go, yeah, you guys are hypocrites. You don't, you don't do what you say you do. You don't really believe in the things that you say you believe in. So I'm going to ask one more question, and then I'll take questions from the room. But I want to just ask you to uh, extemporize a bit on um, the relationship between information and terrorism or the information landscape and terrorism and uh you've just come out of you know from i have the advantage of having you heard you speak a few times uh on the subject but you, you just came out of the state department and where a real priority was was i th i think was understanding the information landscape and the way it shaped diplomacy mm -hmm. and um the way it also shaped non-state actors and so i want to just you know, how you see the, what, what you see as the big challenges facing the country or the world even um, uh, when it comes to information and its relationship to, to terrorism. So it's, it's, turns out, of course, like everything else, it's an age-old problem. You know, Sun Chu said, you know, 2,500 years ago that more towns in history were taken through information war than physical battle, i.e. they opened their gates to the conqueror because they were scared. That's information warfare. And, um, and that is that's been going on for a long time. And there were different masters of it at different times. The Germans before World War I um, come to mind. What's different now is you have these non-state actors who are terrorist groups uh, who and you have a, a new delivery system, social media, that obliterates all of the barriers to communication. It, it's the many-to-many -many model rather than the one-to-many model. And some of them have become pretty good at using them. And, and, and in fact, the skill set necessary is pretty flippin' basic. Um, and, and, you know, anybody who has a smartphone and has been raised on a smartphone can communicate on social media in a way better than you or I can, I'll speak for myself, you're uh, a fundy when it comes to social media. But, um, and 
And terrorist groups ha have been able to use this both in terms of creating content that terrorizes people. Uh, you know, in the case of ISIL, one of the things I'll talk about tonight is it was a, tomorrow it was, a, I'm sorry? Tomorrow night. Oh, tomorrow night, I'm sorry. <laughs> you and I are going to talk about it tonight. Okay. Uh, is that they were a niche brand that turned into a global brand because of their messaging and their messaging because of those violent beheadings. And, and you know, there's a lot of laws of media that, that the terrorist groups can figure out. And um, the other part of the bargain that ca happens with the ease and frictionless medium of, of, of social media is that's a great recruiting tool. And they used social media to recruit those foreign fighters. And even though it was not a great mass sum, I mean, they recruited more foreign fighters than by a, by a multiple than went to fight against uh, Russia in Afghanistan, for example. Um, and, and social media was the, was the, was the main tool for that. Um, it wasn't the only tool. Um, so I, I think it, it gives, and you know, there's, a, there's the, uh, it helps, social media helps rectify the asymmetry of power between state actors and non-state actors, and that helps terrorist groups. All right, I have more questions for Rick, but let me turn this to the room for a moment and see, are there other, any questions for the room? This is <clears throat> somewhat, I mean, it may seem off topic, I hope not, but I had a long discussion. Will you introduce yourself to people oh, who don't know you? We're, we're colleagues, see, yes. you're not, it's like. <laughs> yes, for I, a uh, fellow Shorenstein, most recently in 538. Um, and I was having a discussion last night with some of the Neiman fellows about class and journalism and how few working class Americans are in journalism and whether that contributed to an environment where we didn't plug into the election in a lot of meaningful ways. And I, I spent a lot of time on the road in a variety, every, every place from Silicon Valley sent to millionaires to, you know, steel mills shut Ohio. Um, is do you see class within journalism as an issue? And if so, are we going to rectify it in terms of the future of American journalism? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not telling a secret when I say I've heard you talk about this before, and I agree with you. I mean, in the, the, I don't know if you were at the night that, that uh, President Faust hosted um, uh, different, yeah. but I mean, there was a lot of discussion of and very smart discussion by that, that young woman about how journalism had once been a blue-collar profession. And, and, you know, Mike Royko would have seen that something was going on in those Rust Belt states, and it's become a, uh, you know, elite, highfalutin profession. And, and, and by the way, I, I feel, you know, like I was one of the trailblazers, right? What happened, this is my, my own little version of it, is that something called Watergate happened, and there were these two guys named Woodward and Bernstein, and then they made a fantastic movie about it. <laughs> and there was this one generation of, of young people who, who wouldn't ordinarily have even thought about journalism, and decided, yeah, I'm gonna become a journalist. And so you went from, um, you could even track this, and speaking of elites, I was a Rhodes Scholar. If you look at the, at the professions that Rhodes Scholars become, there was a period of about 15 or 20 years where a very large percentage of Rhodes Scholars became journalists. Mm -hmm. This probably for probably for like a hundred years before, not one Rhodes Scholar became a journalist. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a uh, the Tim Crow's uh, short book, Boys on the Bus, which which was a kind of a fantastic thing. Um, 
uh, and you probably had some of those journalists here at Shorenstein, Johnny Apple being one. Uh, these were, you know, kind of like the cliche, like hard-drinking, uh, working-class guys, many of whom didn't go to college, uh, who were, uh, you know, were the boys on the bus. And um, many years later, um, uh, uh, two great friends of mine, Maureen Dowd and Alessandra Stanley, wrote a, 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 a magazine piece, and I forget what it's called, like the new boys on the bus, and it was about, like, <laughs> You know, journalists, these guys, you know, who had PhDs in, you know, anthropology, like, on the bus, like, calling home to their wives, like, and, you know, saying, you know, let me speak to the kids before they go to sleep. And that's what the, you know, and by the way, that's the, that is the new world. And, and these are, you know, people who live in elite communities, who've gone to elite colleges and universities. Um, and I do think, to, this is a very long answer to your good question, that, that I think, I think that was, that was confirmation bias in a different way. You know, someone, during the campaign, someone uh, sent me, and I, I don't want to get it wrong, uh, but it was a, I think it was a, and maybe someone will hear this and say that it was a, like Pauline Kael in the New Yorker, the old New Yorker film critic, uh, wrote a talk of the town piece after Nixon was elected in 1968, and she said, I don't know how this happened. I didn't know one person who voted for him. <laughs> ominous and um, but I do think that is that's that it, it, it is in some ways typical and um, and I don't know I mean I don't know what to do about it but I, I think that is that diagnosis is a is a correct one let me give you another cut on the boys on the bus Sandy Van Oker ABC said that everything changed on the bus when they took women he said, because up until that point, these were hard-drinking guys. They were pimping for the president. They were fixing each other up. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, the ladies get on the bus, <laughs> and they don't do that anymore. And that was really a revolutionary change. So I'm just adding that to your collage. Uh, but the, I had two questions. The first one, uh, I'm not really a hysterical type, but I'm almost there. And I was hoping you could help me build a metric of how I construct a proto-fascism scale. Um, <coughs> recently, I was with the group, I was in Norway, and was with a group of people, and I just said, has anybody here uh, read the book called In the Garden of the Beast? And there were five of us, and four of the Norwegians had read this book by Eric Larson, essentially the diaries of the American ambassador in Berlin beginning in 31. And he goes there really gung-ho, but he keeps a diary. And every day, he begins to see, hey, this isn't what I thought it was. It's changing. And he begins to send these reports to President Roosevelt, says, get that guy out of here. I don't want to hear that stuff. Uh, I am listening like Eric Larson. Every time I expect the president to say we, and he says I, mm -hmm. I begin to transliterate into what I read in that book. Um, I'd love to hear what you think about where we stand yeah. on the possibilities. How hysterical. How hysterical <laughs> yes. should I be? I wouldn't want anyone to be hysterical. <laughs> um, I, and of course, the, that analogy too is the other one that's become a cliche, the, you know, the frog in boiling water, that if right. you uh -huh. put a frog in a barrel and heat it up, the, the frog will die, but it, 
uh, I, yeah, we'll die, but if you throw it into boiling hot water, it'll, so we're all in the, um, I do think, um, unlike, you know, Germany in the 1930s and unlike um, other places uh, where, where autocracy or dictatorship came in, th those were societies that didn't have or had less strong institutions than our society has. And, um, and, I, and one of the interesting and funny things about, about having gone into government as an outsider who went to Washington to change Washington and to, uh, was that the, my great revelation was that the people who can change Washington are the people who understand how Washington works. And it's very hard to change Washington if you come in as an outsider and presume you know a lot about how it works. And I think we're seeing that with what's happening with the Affordable Care Act. We saw that happened with that first executive order. Um, the, the system of checks and balances and separation of powers, including other institutions like the press and the public and the fact that, that people can get out and march and use social media, I think all of those things are a counterbalance and a counterweight. That doesn't necessarily mean that they will triumph, but I think there's, I think there's tremendous resistance with a small R based on the structure of our society and on the power of our institutions. Notwithstanding, I think they should be stronger. Um, and, and, and it's possible that the, you know, one of the s a silver lining of this is that it does strengthen um, some of those institutions and it does make people realize that you know, we, maybe we're suffering from confirmation bias in this kind of collective madness of crowds of, you know, reasonable people. Um, so, um, so no, but not, not be hysterical, but I think people have to figure, if, if they feel strongly about what's happening, I think they have to figure out what is, what is my role. And, um, you know, we the people are the three words of our, of our central document. And I think people have to figure out how do I, how do I contribute? And that is, I mean, a democracy is about contributing one way or another. And so, um, that would be my public service announcement. <laughs> okay. Old school. Uh, uh, you mentioned that the press helped Trump a lot. It's certainly in the early part before he got elected. What about the way the press treated Hillary? Did they turn into Dracula's daughter? <laughs> <laughs> but what happened? You know, obviously she has imperfections, but she actually got turned around. 180 degrees. Do you blame the press for that, or how do you feel about that? I, I do. Uh, I do think the press has uh, some responsibility for that too. And um, at the State Department, um, there are lots of TVs, like in the hallways, and when you go down to the cafeteria. And um, I love the State Department cafeteria, by the way. I recommend <laughs> it to people. And uh, there was always a uh, there's a monitor that was always on to CNN. Um, that I would stop and look at as I was going in, and, and um, I would look at the Chiron across the screen because the sound wasn't on. And during the campaign, once the, it, was, it was the two candidates, um, the Chirons were always like, candidates clash over whether Earth revolves around the sun. <laughs> and this was a disservice to Hillary because there was a moral equivalency between things that were not equivalent. Um, uh, while I, you know, 
think she should have come up with a much better explanation, which I could do for you right now, of why the, the emails were uh, just a, 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 not even a misdemeanor. Um, uh, nevertheless, even, even if you look at it in the most hysterical way, it, it was not equivalent to, to 50 other things that the, her, her, her opponent was guilty of, and um, including serial misinformation, disinformation, lying, et cetera. Um, and I think one of the problems is the sort of structure of how we cover campaigns. And I've covered a bunch of campaigns and worked in a couple. The problem is, is that, and when I was editor of Time, I always resisted this, is like, you'd say, like, let's, let's, we need to do something on the two candidates. And like, the art department would always come up with two boxers going at each other. Like, no, man, we can't do that boxing thing again, that cliche. But that was the structure of thing. It was that it was always equal. It was two, it's like the Super Bowl, right? But what, what do you have when one party is, you know, 17 rungs of the ladder below the other in terms of, of quality for the job, uh, understanding of the system, plans? I, I think it's, it, you help the, uh, when you treat McDonald's and Wendy's as though the same, you're helping Wendy's. <laughs> and so what, what happened during the campaign was there's this automatic equivalency between the two because they are the two nominees of the two parties. And again, I think that did Hillary a gigantic disservice and it helped candidate Trump by, by giving him the same uh, equivalency as, as, as the most qualified person to ever run for president. And um, so I think the press has, has some liability there, too. Let me ask a question about what um, takes us back. I'm just kind of reflecting on something you said a little earlier in this conversation about, since the role of digital networks in information, spreading information or even misinformation, um, and the way they help to level the playing field. And I, don't, I can't remember if you used that term, but I was thinking about mm -hmm. That's what I took away from it. Um, and I know you're an advisor to Snapchat, and I'm just wondering about how you, what role you see for the digital platforms here. And to kind of give it a little bit of a larger frame, you know, in the fall, we had uh, Jeffrey Rosen here talking about free speech and kind of the American conception of free speech versus a, a European conception. Mm -hmm. Um, and how in Europe concerns about hate speech figure much, much larger than they do in the United States and kind of the Brandeisian <laughs> threshold of free speech is, you know, allows a lot of speech. Yeah. And, uh, and the way the digital platforms, you know, are I think fair to say struggling to figure out what their responsibilities are to the public sphere. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering how you think about that. And you, you know, and presumably you had some conversation with them in government and you're kind of working with one now. And wh how do you see the, we'll say the responsibilities of, um, of digital platforms to the public in the public sphere? And uh, yeah, I'll stop there. So, I, you know, I'm gonna split those apart because um, I think the issue of free speech and hate speech is a, is a slightly different issue, and maybe I'll just touch that for one second. I mean, one of the things that you see when you're dealing with countries all around the world is 
Um, and we go around. We talk about the importance of free speech, of transparent and open media. And they don't understand the First Amendment. They don't understand the Brandeisian standard of uh, it's not, we don't just protect the speech that we love, we protect the speech that we hate. People around the world draw a blank with that. They think it's pernicious that we tolerate and accept and protect what they consider hate speech. I think that's a really interesting issue. Um, and I think, you know, if things were not, if in a different world, that would be something that I think that, that we should actually explore statutarily. And um, because I do think, and I think you see, and I'll segue to the social media companies, they see something with the use and abuse of hate speech that we've sort of never seen in history before. And the fact that uh, it can be so, it can be both directed towards millions and directed towards one person and be incredibly powerful. I think it, it requires some rethinking. It's not just the Nazis marching on Skokie, Illinois anymore. Um, that being said, that I think the digital companies are going to reinvent media and journalism and are already. And, um, and there's a, you know, one of the things that we're seeing is the, is the, you know, the diminishment of that classic traditional fact-based um, investigative reporting. Not that it's not being done or not that it's not being done well, but that is it finding an audience and is it having that effect, you know, of the, of the you know, sunlight being the great disinfectant, you know, as the justice said. Um, I, and, and what we've seen over the past 20, 25 years is the, you know, regular people prizing the opinions of peers over experts, right? Journalists are experts, right? I mean, when I, you know, became editor of Time, I, I, and I used to say to, you know, people, I got criticized for this, you know, I'd say to our defense correspondent, you've been covering the Defense Department for 30 years, you've done on the one hand, on the other, about this weapon system, at the end, tell me what you think. You're a flipping expert. I want to know. I need a point of view. And, oh, is that opinion journalism? No, it's not. And opinion journalism is, a, you know, just an, a view based not on any evidence. But what we've seen is the undermining of experts' views, in part because of maybe the, that, that it seems elitist. That fact-based information seems elitist to a lot of people now. And, um, and so if people trust the you know, the peer reviews on Amazon more than a, the New York Times book critic, you know, who's been reviewing books for 20 years, I, I think there's some adaptation that has to happen. And, and, and you mentioned Snapchat. I mean, uh, one of the things that I think Snap has been a, a leader on is, um, is, is aggregating user-generated content, views that, you know, that people take with their camera phone and editing that, aggregating that to kind of live stories. And, and that is peer-created content where people make judgments about it and, and, and it has a resonance with people sometimes that, that you know, traditional you know, third-person journalism doesn't have. And, and there's a kind of a transition from, from a more analytical take on news and events to a more experiential one which I think is changing journalism. And, and people find that experiential experience not only more interesting, but more persuasive and more honest. 
And so um, I, I think I think we're seeing that happening in, in, in real time. And by the way, that can be exploded, exploited for ill as well as good. It, like in the case of ISIS. <laughs> well, I, I, that, I, they, you know, didn't become that sophisticated. Um, um, and I actually think, you know, not, not, the, the, to, not to end that discussion, but I mean, I do think that we, we the, the, the power of ISIS on social media is mostly done. Um, they're mostly done as, an, as, a, as a military operation. They're mostly done in some ways as an ideological organization. They are now using social media to exploit vulnerability and grievance, which has nothing to do with their ideology, which is something lots of groups do. Um, so I, I, you know, I think they're you know, looking in the rearview mirror now. Helen, and then, yeah. Helen Bowden, Shaughnessy and Fellow, BBC. Um, Somebody I, under 40 has to ask a question. Yes. <laughs> How dare you. Okay. <laughs> Helen, I know you're on the cusp, <laughs> Helen. But, um, so I don't know. <laughs> I, I, what you were talking about experiential, I thought was, I think it's incredibly valid, but it is sort of why we shouldn't be so shocked when people don't want our facts. Because actually, <laughs> as we, as social media allows more and more experiential, and when we get virtual reality journalism, which I've seen a few examples right. of, um, you will really get experiential. The reality that actually facts become almost fleetingly irrelevant because it's the experience that is everything. Mm -hmm. You know, we are, we are human beings driven, as you talked earlier about, far, by, far more by emotion than by rationality. Yeah. So we're sort of shocked about, you know, people can't have their own facts, or yes, we can. Actually, yeah. I think that's driven hugely my experience, and if that's the direction media generally is going, I think it's quite gloomy for fact-based journalism. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you feel about that, but I, I think it's a. But I do think challenge. there's not there's there's that's not new. I mean that I'm is sure in the sense of that that is our, the way our brains have, have been working worked, for yeah. twenty thousand years, and um, and I think we had a kind of rosier view of how important facts are and how how. Uh, impressive they were to people and persuasive, more so than was actually the case. I mean, all of, you know, I'm a gigantic, you know, Daniel Kahneman fan, you know, thinking fast and slow is yeah, like the, the Bible. Um, but I mean, that, ha that, you know, his whole career in philosophy is about how people have, have cognitive biases that don't allow them to actually see reality. Completely, but there, but actually, it's a sort of stage beyond that because if you have media and you can't put the gene back in the bottle, but that actually is sort of almost fueled by the speed, the neurological biases that our brain has. It's only ever going to be the, the the push in the opposite direction to say, which is, do you remember in the book he talks about the 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 need to slow down and yeah. absorb real evidence is profound and very, very difficult for human beings. And all our technology is going in the opposite direction. Well, and, and all of our technology, topic. right. And so, and everything, I mean, everybody in this room he is, who is, I'll put you all in the elite category. I mean, you know, he makes that distinction, system one, system two. Yes. The system two is this slow thinking, rational mm -hmm. use of facts. System one is the more instinctive, you know. Easier. Reptilian brain thing. I mean, but basically everybody here in this room has spent their life being, trying to be a system two person and teach people to be system two people, to use rationality and, and reason. And, you know, one of the things that came out of this campaign for me is that, I mean, elites have a lot of rethinking to do about 
the presumptions and cognitive biases that we had, the, the fact that, um, that, you know, I, I used to, you know, during the campaign, I used to call my friends who were journalists and say, I'm going to make you famous. What, what? I said, ask him, what are the three branches of government? <laughs> and nobody did it. And then finally, a friend of mine said, you're an idiot. I said, why? He said, well, he doesn't know. And the people voting for him don't know, and they don't care. <laughs> and, and, you know, when I was at the Constitution Center, uh, you know, two heads before Jeff Rosen, who was doing a fantastic job, by the way, um, Sandra Day O'Connor came onto our, our board. And she was then creating this, or I forget what the organization was, but it's about teaching of civics in American schools. And she, said to, and she would say to me, Mr. Stengel, we are going to reap the whirlwind due to the fact that we haven't taught civics for the last 40 years in, 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 um, in America. And, you know, that, what are the three branches of government? How a bill becomes a law? You know, we make jokes about it, but it's like, we are, it is a problem that people don't know that anymore. And they don't value people who do understand that. And, um, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, in that uh, Steve Bannon interview at CPAC, where he talked about his own kind of the three lines of effort of the Trump administration, the third one being the, the dismantling of the administrative state, um, which I don't look at as a cutting through bureaucracy. I, I look at as how do you, how do you dismantle uh, many of the accepted points of view of, of what a democratic state like America looks like, whether it's in environmental protection, uh, whether it's in tax policy, whether it's in health care. I think th the fact that uh, you can even mount a challenge like that is in part because the lots of Americans who don't understand that and don't understand the benefits uh, that that state has had. And I don't want to be a defender of the large state, but I mean, I, I, I do remember always trying to figure out how to do, and never did when I was editor of Time, a cover story on, about what, what government actually does for people every day that they don't understand. And it would be like from the moment you get up and you, you, know, you brush your teeth and there's fluoride in the teeth, toothpaste and in your water and all of these regulations that government ha, ha, has created that are invisible to people, in part because government, to go back to our original public diplomacy thing, does a terrible job of telling you what it does. Um, and uh, people don't, they, they, they see no connection between their tax dollars and any benefit that they have uh, because they don't realize that, you know, that it's highways and public education and all of these things that are paid for that government does, very imperfectly, but to, but to people's benefit. And not teaching civics is part of the reason that people don't understand that. Uh, C.P. Tang, a local resident. Uh, with the freedom of the press, uh, how is there a way to control the publication of fake news or disinformation? Or how, do be, how should it be handled for the better good of the society? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the line that is always trotted out, it's become a cliche that, you know, the the, uh, you know, uh, a lie goes halfway around the world before the truth puts on its boots, right? Mark Twain, 1846, <laughs> right? I mean, this is an old problem, right? That, that there's a new mechanism for distribution of it. You know, Thomas Jefferson not only said, uh, you know, 
given the choice between a uh, you know a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I would choose the latter. He also said, as we saw, that you know newspapers should div be divided up into four sections: lies, <laughs> probabilities, possibilities, and truth. So um, that was even older. So. So that what do you do about fake news, which is a new phrase about an old problem, is, is, an, is an old problem. Um, and you know, I keep thinking, wouldn't it be great if fact or truth you know, became, was, you know, suddenly you were typing it and the letters turned gold and everyone could say, okay, that's gold and that's the truth and I can trust that. Problem is we don't have a mechanism for that. And, and when we go back to social science and confirmation bias, you know, there are people who argue that two plus two equals four. So, this is a long way of saying I don't have a great um, answer for that. And, um, and I do think journalism has to start to adapt to the fact that, um, that some part of the audience you want to reach is disposed to que question the, f the, the basis in fact of what it is that you're doing. So um, I, don't ha I don't have a good answer. I mean, I like some of the things that are, um, that are being discussed. I mean, these idea of a kind of a good housekeeping seal of approval for stories that are uh, correct uh, and fact-based, you know, at the same time a, 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 a negative seal um, for stories that, that are not fact-based. But I mean, but again, that's open to abuse. I saw a story last week about, you know, uh, some of the Russian organs like Russia Today and Sputnik have started putting fake news stamps on things that they disagree with. Right, so I don't know. I mean, that's the the you know part of the whole you know strangeness of the of the Trump campaign, and the Trump presidency is it's so much about projection. It's that you know he always accuses the other person of the thing that he's doing. That's that's the Russian playbook, mm -hmm. and that's the playbook of all of these authoritarian abusers of information, um, who even to go back older is that they. They look at information as a, as a governmental resource. We don't because of the First Amendment. And it's a government resource in countries like China and Turkey that they want to protect it because they, they want to be the purveyors of information. That's a gigantic challenge. And I think what we're going to start to see <coughs> is even in a place like Russia, which is a basically a, has been a free information space. You can sit in the middle of Moscow and read the New York Times online or CNN um, countries are realizing that they can control their information space. Russia was the first, was the past this data, lo data localization law, which is being copied all around the world, which basically said any data or information harvested by a third party about a citizen in your country has to flow through a server in your country before it goes to Silicon Valley, basically. Well, everybody's doing that now. And um, that is a, a, a massive effort to control information in an era that we thought information was free and information can go wherever it wanted. It's not. I mean, it's still the law, it still obeys the laws of physics. And, and, and governments, particularly autocratic governments, are realizing that they can control that. It's a long answer without a good answer. But, um, well, uh, we are unfortunately out of time. But thank you, Rick, for taking time. Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com. Music